Welcome back. You are listening to the third and final part of the series on toxicology here at Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club. I guess we'll move on to our third and final paper now. We have our very own toxicology registrar, Mariz, who's going to be presenting a paper titled Pre-Hospital Management of Sarin Nerve Gas Terrorism in Urban Settings, 10 Years of Progress After the Tokyo Subway Sarin Attack. So this was obviously published out of Japan in May 2005, and it was published 10 years after the Tokyo Subway Sarin Attacks that happened. It was published by Yasuharu Tokuru and his colleagues. I'm going to throw it over to you, Mariz, to take us through this paper. It's a Japanese paper on something that happened in Japan that was obviously probably quite distressing to them. I think the reason that they've created this paper is so we can learn from the errors that occurred at the time to ensure preparedness for other people if such a horrible situation were to occur again. I'm not going to go into the history of it, but it would seem that there was an attack in Tokyo as well as in a second city in Japan. Some religious extremists released some sarin gas, resulting in a few people of dying. This study is a summary of various articles, first-hand experiences and websites that they found in order to provide some guidance for people that come afterwards, I think. So the evidence isn't great. It's not an RCT. They haven't done a systematic review. In fact, uh, they don't even actually tell you um, where a lot of the information has come from. So basically what they did is they analysed tox data as well as incidents of nerve gas chemical terrorism. They performed a focus analysis on the sarin poisoning, particularly in the Tokyo subway system. And then they summarised recommendations. So they searched three sources for relevant reports. So they looked at Medline databases, government and military reports, and websites of the relevant government, academic, military and commercial entities. Their Medline search strategies include mesh terms such as chemical warfare, chemical warfare agents, gas poisoning and sarin. And then they further consulted medical staff that were at one of the hospitals that treated people that were there at the attack. They looked at articles that looked at personal bibliographies, electronic resources, media reports and conference proceedings. So like I said, the information that they got this from ranges and it's not entirely just an evidence-based thing. They focused mainly on years of publication being after 1995, as that is when this attack occurred. So basically, what are nerve agents? So they're chemically similar to organophosphate pesticides. And what they do is they inhibit the acetylcholine esterase enzyme, which causes acetylcholine to accumulate and acute cholinergic crisis. We'll go into the mechanism action in a bit and exactly what symptoms they cause. There are four classic nerve agents. There's something called tabin, sarin, somin and cyclosarin. Most of them are clear, colourless and tasteless liquids, which is just a terrifying statement. And they evaporate at the same rate as water. Tabin has a slightly fruity odour and somin has a slightly camphor-like odour, but they make a point to say that you can't tell based on the odour. So the mechanism of toxicity, basically normally you have acetylcholine esterase, which is bound to the postsynaptic membranes at cholinergic synapses. And they usually function to switch off uh, and regulate neurotransmission. So if you inhibit the acetylcholine esterase, basically you get um, accumulation of acetylcholine. 
and this enhances synaptic transmission. And this occurs at at different receptors. So it can occur at muscarinic receptors as well as nicotinic receptors. And it also occurs within the central nervous system. And then overstimulation causes the cholinergic crisis. So there are various routes of exposure to this. So you can get it through inhalation, which is what occurred in the sarin gas attacks in Japan, dermal contact or ingestion. So obviously the scariest one is through inhalation and is what has occurred in these attacks. Dermal contact can cause effects up to 18 hours after exposure. So if the contact is dermal in nature, you actually have to watch them for 18 hours in hospital afterwards. And ingestion obviously is quite rare, but it is also highly toxic. Clinical manifestations, you get an acute cholinergic syndrome. So the muscarinic signs include pinpoint pupils, blurred or dimmed vision, rhinorrhea, headache, hypersecretion by the salivary, lacrimal sweat and bronchial glands, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, crampy abdominal pain, bowel and bladder incontinence, as well as dyspnea. Your nicotinic signs are the ones that actually can kill you quickest, but you get initially muscle twitching, cramping, weakness and flaccid paralysis, tachycardia and hypertension. You can also get central nervous system signs, which are the irritability, ataxia, seizures, as well as respiratory depression. And so death can result from convulsions and respiratory failure. So they talk for a while about the history of sarin attacks and I will only point out that as expected it was made by a German scientist in 1938 during World War II but it wasn't actually used at that point in time which I did find I think nice and then further from there it's been used in various wars until it was used in this Japan attack. So they've summarised the attack and exactly how it happened. I don't want to give anyone ideas but I will talk about what they thought went wrong at the time. They point out that at the time, there were a few things that went wrong. So one of them included secondary exposure of their staff. There wasn't appropriate PPE. They say something like 20% of their staff had secondary exposure and symptoms secondary to this. There was no overall disaster plan in many of their hospitals. And there certainly wasn't an overall disaster plan for Japan. And what this resulted in was no on-site decontamination, no on-site PPE, People were wearing normal work clothing and then therefore getting further exposed to it. Because of the lack of disaster awareness, there wasn't anyone really creating cooperation and communication among the organisations. And then even their usual means of communication were then overwhelmed. They also point out that triage was not performed properly and they've mentioned that people were triaged as being lesser and then became more sick, which of course can happen, I mean, any place, any time. There was also an issue in that the initial agent was identified as acetonitrile, but they've also mentioned that the hospitals just ignored this because it did not appear to be that way at all. What do they recommend after they've noted all these issues? So they recommend that, A, there should be coordinate disaster drills and mass casualty planning for nerve gas terrorism. They think that if you have these drills, they've tried to imply that you should get the entire community involved, which I think might be a bit difficult But certainly within the people in the drills, there should be people who become experts. So they should be able to know things about how to decontaminate, where the PPE is located and how you would treat these patients, basically. They also believe that there should be a team coordinating everything that is going on. They then move on to the problems with triage. So they've mentioned that triage in a mass casualty situation, particularly with like a terrorist attack or a sarin gas problem, that you should use the simple triage and rapid treatment system, which allows you to triage patients within 30 seconds. Once again, I'm not going to go into the nitty-gritty, but they say that people triage into, I suppose, four categories. So immediate, 
are those who require life-saving treatment within a short time. So those are your people that might need to be put onto a ventilator or are actively seizing in front of you. You've got two, which is delayed. So people with severe injuries in need of hospital care, but this can be delayed and it will not adversely affect the outcome. And then three, which is minimal. So they can be helped by non-medical personnel and do not require hospitalization. And then you've got your cat four, which is expectant, which is severe life-threatening injuries who would not survive with optimal medical care. So they include in this category things like cardiac arrest, respiratory arrest, or continued seizures immediately. So I suppose in that moment when you've got mass casualties, you want to be providing your care to the people that will survive. They go on to discuss after the triage how they would be brought in and that in order to prevent secondary exposure, people should have appropriate PPE, which includes heavy butyl rubber gloves, boots, air-supplied respirators with self-contained breathing apparatus. You also want to be able to decontaminate everything that's come in as well as the patients, and they want people who are unseen to be experts in this. So decontamination, there's also a lot there as to be expected, but in reality, they're just talking about simple measures such as flushing things that have been exposed with water, getting rid of contaminated clothes and sealing them in non-permeable double bags. And if available, people should be showered with soap and water, which is interesting. They don't really need anything special to do that. Now, moving on to the actual management of these patients. So the first step, as we mentioned, is protecting the staff. So getting them in the appropriate PPE, decontaminating the patient. And then we're talking about things like respiratory support. So the thing that will kill you is if you stop breathing. So you, some patients will need to be intubated. Beyond this, there are antidotes. So um, this is probably something we'll go into further in the discussion. But they talk about giving atropine, pralidoxin, which is also known as 2PAM, diazepam and tropicamide. So atropine only really works properly at the muscarinic synapses and you're giving it at much higher doses than we normally give at. So the field loading dose is two, four, then six milligrams and you can retreat every five to 10 minutes. 2PAM, they mentioned, is an oxime that acts as an ACHE reactivator and binds nerve agent and removes it from the enzyme. But this can only be administered before the aging process occurs, which is when there's um, like a covalent bond and irreversible binding. So in sarin gas, that's before three to five hours. They then go into various ways that this can be done on the field. And I believe people carry it when they're in like the army and such. You should also then, if any seizures, treat it with diazepam. And for those that have flaccid paralysis, they recommend an EEG to make sure that you're not missing any seizures and therefore missing out on treating them. And if you would like to reverse meiosis, you can give tropicamide. They then discuss disposition. So as mentioned earlier, the people that get severe toxicity are those that inhale it and then have maybe a respiratory arrest or go into flaccid paralysis or seize. But some people who are exposed dermally may experience some symptoms up to 18 hours later, so they should be watched for that period of time. They mentioned that those who are exposed only through vapor form do not need to be admitted and can be sent home if they have no symptoms. That's kind of the end of their suggestions. So they do have a discussion afterwards where they re-summarise what they've basically stated. In summary, I've just tried to summarise the summary. And we're just talking about A, how people present, B, what you should do when they present, C, how you should protect staff, and D, how you should treat the patients and then further what to do with them. Noren, can I ask that age-old question about praladoxime? Things have changed in the last 
20, 30 years since this happened. While we might not use it for organophosphate poisoning, I think a lot of the auto-injectors still have obidoxime on them, or if they don't, if they're just atropine only, then you can give pralidoxime separately, but you've got to give it quickly for these agents. So for something like Soman, almost not going to happen because the aging is so fast. But for VX, if you manage to know that it's VX that early, and that's the hard part is if someone's going to be using these agents, they're not going to advertise the fact that it is what it is. And for us to be able to detect that this is nerve agent and then give the antidote in a early fashion is going to be impossible. I mean, there have been attacks of nerve agent, as you would know, there was one in an airport in Malaysia a few years ago, and we think that might be VX. Tokyo one's interesting in many ways, you know, they had a low level sarin attack the year before in a little city outside Tokyo called Matsumoto, the same religious cult released a lower level concentration of sarin to just test out. But nobody knew at the time that that was their plan to go beyond that. But they did it, same cult did a low grade test in Matsumoto the year before this happened in Tokyo. And it wasn't the toxicologist that was very busy in this attack. It was the orthopedic surgeon. Because while 12 people died from sarin gas poisoning, 5,000 people were injured with various fractures from the stampede of people running out of the um, subway. And if you've been in Japanese subways, like any subways, you've got lots of people cramped and it was in a busy rush hour period, running outside of narrow stairwells, trampling each other. And so there were lots of orthopedic injuries, which is what really inundated the hospital not from actual toxicological presentations, but from other things. And interestingly, in another paper, I have read that quite a few of the staff felt like they had been poisoned. And the common symptom was meiosis and the feeling of dizziness, but none of the staff actually had reduced cholinesterase levels. It's hard to know whether there was actual nosocomial exposure. If it was, it was mild and not measurable. Obviously, lots of different types of nerve agents, and you talked about the ageing process of those, and pralidoxime being something that you might consider for something that ages later. Are they all relatively similar? On that note, how do we go about identifying the, the agent that's out there? Do they all provide pretty much similar effects? Is it just about guessing? I mean, if we're talking about nerve agents, Soman ages the fastest within minutes and VX is the longest, which is, you know, many hours. We're talking a day or two. The others are in between. I mean, the issue is firstly, knowing what agent it is and then having the antidote available in time before the aging process happens. But the other part of it is, yes, you can give the drug perhaps, but then does it have any major effect on outcome. And that's where we falter in organophosphate poisoning, for example, is while we might know the agent and we might be able to get the oxime in before the aging happens, it doesn't seem to improve outcomes. So we've largely stopped giving oxymes in organophosphate poisoning. And that's from studies where they've got large numbers of patients taking organophosphate overdoses, predominantly in the Indian subcontinent. What's the process, Naren? You as a toxicologist, 
identify that you think that something's going amiss, that you think that maybe there is an exposure to some kind of organophosphate, where do you go with that? Well, with nerve agents, it's a completely different scenario. Even though they work in the same way and they block the enzyme acetylcholine esterase, nerve agents are colorless, odorless gases that very hard to detect. You almost don't even know that that's happening till much, much later. If you think about the more extreme version of that is Novichok, which is a, a novel designer. See, I thought it was a sugar-free chocolate bar, personally. <laughs> <laughs> We've had recent cases of Novichok that we just didn't even know till much later that that's what it was. But with organophosphate, yes, you often do know that they've taken a chemical and you can smell it perhaps. And sometimes the patient or someone will bring in the chemical or take a photo of the bottle so that you know what it is. We tend to usually stick to atropine in that situation and giving oxines doesn't seem to help. But there are occasions where some toxicologists might use an oxine. But by and large, for the purposes of the emergency clinician, atropine is what you're sticking to. I'm not sure if this is an answerable question, but why wouldn't the oxime work? The oxime is there to try and reactivate the enzyme before it becomes covalently or permanently bound to the blocking agent. Why wouldn't it work? There's many possible answers to that. It could be that tocolinesterase isn't the only sort of target organ or enzyme. It may be doing other things that cause death. It's possible that just because you've reactivated this enzyme that that's not then going to make any change to organ systems that have already been poisoned. It may be that we are um, fixated on this one enzyme and this one sort of method of treatment and it doesn't seem to sort of work in real life clinical settings, which is what appears to be happening in organophosphate poisoning. With that in mind, theoretically, if somebody were to be exposed to a nerve agent like here, would you be giving it? Never seen that. Before. <laughs> theoretically, I'd hopefully it doesn't happen. Think about, yeah. I'd certainly think about it and certainly depending on which nerve agent, if I knew that it was nerve agent and had access to give pralidoxime early before aging occurred, yes, you might do that because it's something that you're trying everything you can to improve, but we just don't have the data to say that it actually is going to help. Really, what you need to do, even if they do have a cholinergic crisis, is you know protect the airway, clear the secretions, and give atropine. One of the key teaching points, actually, from the Tokyo attack is that, one, they learned that they need to have a plan, a disaster plan for chemical attacks, which they didn't have before. And it was my understanding that back in the 90s, ambulance officers were not allowed to intubate in Japan pre-hospital. So that's possibly something that they've corrected over the last 20 years, that pre-hospital intubation is an important preventive measure to improve outcomes, which seems a pretty obvious thing to us now. I believe they were not allowed to do it back then. So that was one of the things that they certainly learnt from this whole incident is, is about pre-hospital intubation. And this was because of Japanese law at the time. You were told this guy's coming in after an exposure to a nerve agent. What would you be doing? Well, you certainly want to make sure that person is in a room with negative pressure, ventilation, and everyone's wearing PPE appropriate to that, and that they don't touch the pressions and so forth. It's very unlikely that you would breathe in nerve agent from the patient, but theoretically off-gassing is a possibility. But you'd want to wear appropriate PPEs and respirators. After your assessment, give atropine if they've got a cholinergic secretion sort of output for the same sort of uh, indications that you would in organophosphate poisoning of, you know, secretions, heart rate, blood pressure, that sort of thing. 
and then think about getting Optime in early if you felt that, that that was going to help based on which nerve agent it was or if you didn't know then you'd probably have to take a guess and see whether oxines were worthwhile the horrendous kind of once in a lifetime hopefully never in a lifetime scenario that that has occurred in rare parts uh, around the world there are certainly the hospital and department disaster plans and there are disaster training that includes training about chemical agents not just nerve agents it's something that's part of training and courses and it's also part of the disaster plan if you know we saw a spate of two or three people said you know i was on the train happened to get off at westmead felt really unwell and you know were showing signs of nerve agent or organophosphate poisoning where do i take that information who do i who do i contact well, like any patient who's poisoned and you're wondering what to do, you would call the Tox call Reds your on call. Friendly neighborhood Tox Reds um, <laughs> or Tox person on call. But yes, you would expect that that would immediately go to the consultant and they would be actively involved in the management. If you don't activate the disaster immediately and go through the disaster channel, then yes, it would go through public health. But I think way before public health, you would possibly activate a chemical disaster through the um, area HASFAC and state disaster controller. If it was Marissa's theoretical patients, so plural, for example, at Westmead Emergency, we have a very like open-aired ambulance bay with decontamination showers and things like that. Is this the sort of thing we'd be managing people out there or is it safer to manage these patients in a closed space or with like with full PPE, of course? But Well, you can decontaminate them as anywhere as long mm. as you've got adequate drainage and PPE on and you're able to provide early resuscitation alongside that decontamination. I mean, if the patient's awake and walking, and you're able to monitor them outside while they shower, then that's fine. But if they need intubation, you might need to take them into resus room, uh, the single room, and decontaminate them and provide resuscitation at the same time. It just depends on what their clinical status is at the time. Variety of nerve agents, the variety of you know potential chemical weapons has developed hugely over the last 25 years. Is it reading literature that keeps you up to date on these things or is there a kind of trickle down from poisons about up and coming chemical weapons? How does that happen? Are you allowed to tell us? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, reading literature, case report of any incidents and um, keeping up with the sort of disaster medicine community is the way to sort of understand that. I'll I'll leave it at that. (laughs) Thanks, Classified information. Theoretically, once again, you've got a situation where, you know, a group of people who are in a shared place suddenly, I don't know, become unwell. And we were to exclude other things such as like, I don't know, like a virus or an infectious process. What are the toxicological causes that you might think of? Is it purely nerve gas or is there other things that you would have to rule out in your mind? I think in our current risk level in Australia, nerve gas would not be the first thing that comes to mind. Um, I think it can be very difficult, actually, to tell the difference between infectious agents and chemical agents. It can be very difficult. They can present very similarly. And even something quite in between, like botulism, where you've got an infectious agent that produces a toxin, which is sort of really on the border of infection and toxicology. So there's multiple things that it could be. But To answer your question, look, it would really depend on was it something that was ingested? Was it something airborne that people inhaled? Was there recreational drugs around? 
you know, for a, a mass poisoning event, you really have to think about the route of exposure or you could drill down into the kinds of agents that you're thinking about. In these thoughts, it would be, you know, you're in an open area, these people don't know each other, it's not a festival. So like, say, a train station in Sydney, suddenly many people become unwell, it sounds like it's inhalational. What are your thoughts? What do you need to rule out? You'd have to worry about gaseous exposure in that setting where people don't know each other, they haven't consumed anything. It's not a solid or liquid thing that you'd have to worry about various kinds of gases. I mean, there have been much more common industrial and environmental disasters across the world, including CO2 gas leaks, hydrogen sulfide and other agents that are much more common than nerve agents. That's for sure. Fantastic. Well, that was very stimulating discussion, Marie, in your theoretical thoughts. <laughs> what are your take-home points from this paper? My take-home points are... Hopefully this will never happen here, but if something like this were to happen, you want to be thinking about pre-hospital, in-hospital and post-hospital. So pre-hospital, you want somebody in tent somewhere making all the decisions and making sure that people are appropriately communicated to. You want to make sure that people are being adequately decontaminated on scene and wearing appropriate PPE. And you want to make sure the kind of staff that can take care of somebody are there. So if somebody needs intubation on scene, we should have the kind of people that are on scene able to intubate. Then bringing it to hospital, we want to be doing similar things. So we want to be making sure that we've got people who know how to decontaminate present and make sure that people are decontaminated, making sure that hospital staff are wearing appropriate PPE and then talking about experts on the field, such as toxicologists, providing the appropriate advice for management. And then further, obviously, those who are unwell will probably make their way into intensive care, but then knowing how long you have to watch these people after an exposure. Thank you so much, Maurice, for presenting that paper in theory. It's actually quite interesting, I think. It's a terrifying thought that this could happen anywhere at any time, but I guess being prepared is the answer for this. So wrapping it up this month, in his corner, our fan favourite, our absolute joy of the podcast, Dr. Kit Rowe. What have you got in your corner this week? Thanks, Amanda. That's very flattering indeed. What better than a tox episode to talk briefly about insulin? It's a drug that we prescribe a lot and it's got a great history. It's well worth a read. Even prior to its discovery by Banting, Best and McLeod, although this is hotly debated, it was quite a profound discovery for medicine, an instant miracle cure, but one that needed very careful titration, and still does. That was before the days of measuring tiny quantities well, and the idea to standardise in units was formed. But do you know what a unit of insulin is? I didn't. Well, it harks back to the initial discovery, where they looked at the effect of insulin in rabbit models. Frowned upon these days, one unit of insulin is the smallest dose required for a two kilo rabbit to have a seizure. That's wild.
And that concludes this month's episode on toxicology at the Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club. Thank you so much to everyone for joining us. Thank you to all of our fantastic guests and speakers today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to all of you and having you present all of these little sort of divots of information in the toxicology world. Um, If any of you listeners have any questions, comments, concerns, please feel free to email us at westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at n5 underscore emj club. We look forward to seeing you next month with the wellbeing episode. September, think of all of the things we won't remember. I hope we make it to spring, but I can't wait. Now, see, the winter sets you free. Now it's October, getting cold, but it's fun. We're getting sober. Yeah, cause you said you love me now And girl, it's all too much and we fall too